This is the third day of our winter seven-day session. Um, it's the 2nd of August 2021. And we're going to continue reading from Not I, Not Other Than I, The Life and Teachings of Russell Williams, edited by Steve Taylor. And we're just um, really finishing off with um, the last chapter dealing with um, Russell Williams' life, and then we'll get into, into some of the teachings. This, this chapter is called The Next Step. I don't see myself as a Buddhist, although you could describe me as a follower of the Buddha. I appreciate wholly the Buddha's teaching. Um, this word Buddhist actually is, is uh, pretty recent coinage. Um, Buddhism and Buddhist were, were coined um, only in the 19th century by uh, Westerners who were beginning to explore it in order to sort of bring it into line with other isms. But this was never um, a Buddhist concept. And in fact, people who practiced Buddhism uh, would call themselves uh, followers of the way. What I do found, find fault with is the orthodoxy of Buddhism, the dogma of the traditions. It's a little like Christianity and the church. The church doesn't understand the true essence of Christianity and presents a false image of it. But anyone who follows the essential teachings of Buddhism and attains some clarity of consciousness will come to recognize the spiritual aspect of light and see it clearly for what it is. They will see that they are an integrated part of everything else, not separate. This is, this is the, um, really the key here. They will see that they are an integrated part of everything else, not separate. Before Sesheen, I was um, working on a, a, a statement that is that is a draft statement that will be from um, religious leaders to um, government, um, especially to the delegation that's going to be going to um, the. Uh, COP26 meeting in Glasgow and it's um, the point of the, the statement is to encourage the delegation to make as strong a commitment as possible to reducing greenhouse gases um, and in writing the statement uh, right from the beginning um, people involved wanted to have 
uh, Tangata Whenua and Pacifica input into the statement, um, not just from a justice ex- perspective in the sense that um, both Māori and Pacifica have a lot to lose on top of what they've already lost um, of their land and much of their culture due to colonisation, um, but also because of how much uh, we can uh, learn from um, indigenous cultures, from the from the 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 worldview, and what what we find in that worldview is is um, this belief that in the interconnectedness of everything. Um, in the process of writing this um, this statement, um, I came across a document by the person who was working with us, um, Anton um, Hikairo Spellman, um, and he had done a study of um, the relate um, how for how uh, Pakeha and Maori uh, could work together and the complexities and the difficulties of that process. And in the, in the introduction to this um, document that can be used by organisations to undertake a, uh, a relationship with uh, Tangata Whenua, he wrote this. For Indigenous people worldwide, there is generally uh, a generally held belief that everything is connected. In Te Ao Māori, those connections and our knowledge of them are generally understood in terms of relationships. From the time of early settlement in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the worldview that operated was broadly Western in nature. A Western worldview understanding tends to segment the world in order to seek knowledge of its various parts. The concept of the person, therefore, is often expressed using language that relates to the autonomous individual. It's in quotes. Humanity is understood as separate from other parts of the natural world, and the relationship of humanity to nature is hierarchical, with humanity in a dominant position. In Te Ao Māori, however, the concept of a person is often expressed in a reciprocal relationship with others and with the natural world. When people with a segmented view of the world encounter those who do not have that view, the forging of a relationship becomes a challenge for both groups. And in Aotearoa, New Zealand, this difference of an approach has involved struggle for both groups. This is this is the teaching of Buddhism too that we are we are relationships. This is another way of actually talking about emptiness. We have the the teaching of dependent co-arising in Buddhism. Everything exists because everything else exists. Or as as Thich Nhat Hanh so helpfully put it, um, a piece of paper is made up entirely of non-paper elements. So it's another way we could we could think of uh, if we struggle with the concept of emptiness, um, is think of it in terms of relationships. We are nothing but relationships. Um, here's what um, a Chinese American uh, teacher in the Xingyan lineage Guo Gu says 
about wisdom and compassion. He says, what is wisdom? Wisdom is emptiness. What is emptiness? Relationships. So you, have, you are made up of non-you. You are related to everything else, everyone else. In Chan, when a person gains insight into wisdom, which is insight into the nature of emptiness, it is at the same time the realization of compassion. Wisdom and compassion are not two wings of a bird. This is a commonly used metaphor to, to describe their relationship. They are actually the same thing. Wisdom is interconnectedness. Emptiness is relationships. When you become relationships, you become everything else. Amid relationship, nowhere is there attachment or self-referentiality. There is the mean, this is the meaning of supreme wisdom. Gaining, losing, wanting, rejecting, they are all based on self-referentiality and attachment. You mustn't lose sight of who you actually are. Gaining, losing, wanting, rejecting, they are all based on self-referentiality and attachment. We've, we've coined the term uh, self-partiality or um, self-importance, one Tibetan master puts it. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But going back to the, the, the climate crisis, just to recognize that it's our, it's our um, objectification of the, the earth as something um, outside of us and dead that has led to our over-exploitation of the Earth's resources, bringing us to where we are now and all the, all the crises that um, the um, um, ecosystem is facing, struggling with. Seem to have lost a page of my notes, but I'll just uh, I'll just soldier on with this. Continues. We're so used to accumulating knowledge, to reading books and listening to teachers and collecting information, but I'm asking people to do the opposite. We're relinquishing knowledge, going into emptier and emptier spaces, creating areas of appreciation which cannot be known with any thought or understanding. My mind is empty all the time. I think if I need to, otherwise I don't. I just enjoy the beauty of experience. When you think, your senses close down. If you think intently, you stop hearing, stop seeing. 
When you stop thinking, the world becomes intensely real and beautiful. And it's not hard to have little tip-of-the-tongue tastes of this, moments when the mind is relatively empty. And suddenly, um, things become come alive. Um, I can vividly remember a couple of such experiences when I first started doing Zen. Um, one was in Sweden where we'd gone to go to a, a workshop with uh, Roshi Kaplow and it was a sort of package deal. There was a, a public talk the first night, a workshop on the Saturday, and then an all-day sitting uh, on the Sunday. And so we, we went straight from a, a workshop into um, a pretty intense day of of sitting in silence. And um, it was all very, very, very new for us. But at the very end of the day, about the last round, about it was about four o'clock in the afternoon, um, there was some activity outside, some people arriving or leaving from from the one of the uh, buildings near where we were having the the workshop. And um, I heard the the car doors slamming, and I heard them in in a kind of fresh and clean way. I was just experiencing the fact that my mind was was slightly less noisy than usual, but it was it was a it was a re- revelation um, in terms of the what practice could show me about my mind. And then the, the second one was um, the next time we. Uh, encountered, directly encountered Zen was when we went four years after we did the workshop in Sweden to to Rochester for a three-week training program and at some point in that period I remember uh, turning on the taps in the in the bathroom of the dorms where we were staying and and hearing the water run from the tap as if for the first time just just hearing the sound of that water, its beauty, its mystery. When you stop thinking, the world becomes intensely real and beautiful. There may be sometimes be difficulties, but there are no worries. He's talking about his own experience now of the world since his his um, awakening. It appears that if one is able to clear the mind and have no knowledge whatsoever, the mind can respond immediately without thinking, and it is capable of doing that with no planning or forethought. In my experience, it always responds effectively and appropriately. If we give it, if we give it half a chance. It's a little bit like a if you had a have a a polluted stream where where various types of poison are going into it. If you just stop putting the poisons in the stream and leave it to flow on its own, it will clean itself up over time. I 
I guess we should qualify that metaphor and say up to a point. Obviously, streams can die. But even in that case, give it long enough. Let the water flow through it for a few centuries and it'll clean itself up. It's always assumed that thinking is consciousness. But if this is true, how do you know when you're thinking thoughts you don't want to think? If you look at the nature of that which is looking, it is quite serene and unconcerned. Looking at something which is chaotic. The two natures are different. Consciousness and thought are not the same. In a state of anxiety, consciousness contracts so much that it becomes nothing. In moments of peace and contentment, it expands to, to so much that it becomes everything. Um, people may be, may be wondering about this, this term consciousness because it's not one that we use um, very much in Zen or in the Zen tradition. Um, and um, I'm guessing it's because it's an abstraction. A concept. When the when the masters are asked about the the the, the highest truth of Buddhism or the, the the fundamental teaching, they answer in all kinds of different ways. Master Joshi said, "The cypress tree in the courtyard." Another master Oman said. A dried shit stick. Joshu, in another situation, said uh, three pounds of flax. You can see that these, it's still words, but they're pointing to things that are much more immediate. But there's still a problem there because they are words, they're not the thing itself. So different masters have approached this in different ways. One master would, uh, when asked about the, the truth, he would hold up one finger. Another one, every time somebody asked him for teaching, he would simply turn around and face the wall. The problem with words is that they set up dualisms. When we think, talk about consciousness, then we might think about what is not consciousness. But, but what is saying that? It's consciousness. You can't get around it. So we, so we work in different ways to try and um, make it real, earth it, ground it. Silence is at the heart of everything. In mechanical terms, it's like a spinning wheel. As it moves up and down and around, there's a point in the middle which doesn't move. Then in medieval times, there would be these depictions of the wheel of fortune, and it would show people on the, the side of the wheel that was 
on the way up to the to the zenith, so to speak, um, happy and and um, fortunate as they go up the side. But then, of course, when they get to the top, then the wheel goes down on the other side, the rim of the wheel, and then there's they're depicted as um, losing, distressed. So up and down, up and down, wheel of fortune, wheel of samsara, wandering through the, the, the different realms, now up, now down. But if we, get, if we get to that center of that wheel, then we discover the still point. If we touch that center, then the, the ups and downs of our lives don't throw us He continues, There will be no next life for me. I don't want to come back. I want to go forward. That sounds suicidal in a sense, losing all aspects of a separate entity to become part of something far greater, but I'm quite prepared to let that happen. It's already happening, in fact. What you see as a separate person is already dissolving, like sugar into tea. So how should I come back? It's, um, again, this might be, seem um, a little strange to us um, coming from, from a Mahayana tradition. Um, but it seems like the, this um, Manchester uh, Buddhist centre was um, uh, largely influenced by the Theravada tradition. And um, just to um, give a bit of background on what he's talking about here when he says, uh, I'm not going to come back. In the Theravada tradition, um, there are seen, seen to be four stages of awakening um, of the Shravaka, which means the voice hearer, one who hears the Dharma. And the first stage is called stream entry. And um, I'll just read a little bit from... Uh, um, great disciples of the Buddha um, passage that looks at these four. So the stream entry um, is one with the first arising of the vision of the Dhamma and is marked by the eradication of the coarsest three fetters. These are the things that, that bind us. The first one is personality view, the view of a substantial self within the empirical person. The second is um, doubt in the Buddha and his teaching, so that's that's er eradicated if, with stream injury. And the third one is wrong grasp of rules and vows, and particularly the belief that mere external observances, including religious rituals and uh, forms of asceticism, can lead to salvation. So th these three wrong views are eliminated. With the cutting off of these three feathers, the fetters, the stream enterer is freed from the prospect of birth in hell, the animal kingdom, and the sphere of hungry ghosts. So you could say within the lower realms of uh, existence. And we can understand these as actual places or as um, states of mind. 
such a one is certain to find final liberation in at most seven more lifetimes passed either in the human world or in the heavens. Then, so that's the, that's the um, stream enterer. The next major stage of awakening is that of the once returner who will be re reborn only one more time in the human realm or in the sense sphere heavens and there reach the ultimate goal. The path of the once returning does not eradicate any fetters beyond those already eliminated by the path of stream injury. It does, however, attenuate the three root defilements, greed, hatred, and delusion, so that they arise only sporadically and then only in a mild degree. Now, the third one is the one that, that um, seems to be behind what um, Russell Williams is talking about. That is the, that of the non-returner. The third path, that of the non-returner, cuts off two deep roots of emot emotional turbulence within the psyche, the defilements of desire for sensory stimulation and ill will, the fourth and fifth fetters, which are removed in all their manifold guises, even the subtlest. Because these two fetters are the principal ties that keep living beings bound to the sense-desire realm, the non-returner, as the name implies, never returns to this realm. Rather, such a one is spontaneously reborn in one of the exalted form-realm heavens called the pure abodes, accessible only to non-returners, and there attains final nibbana without ever coming back to this world. And then the fourth and final stage is arahantship, um, which is the elimination of even the, the five subtle fetters that have remained unabandoned even in the non-returner. And these are desire for existence in the form realm, and the formless realm, so the higher ones, conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. Uh, conceit's interesting, in other words, feeling you're special because you're um, advanced on, in your understanding, a subtle fetter, restlessness and ignorance. As ignorance is the most deeply grounded of all the defilements, when the path of arahantship rises, fully fathoming the four noble truths, ignorance collapses, bringing all the other residual defilements along with it. The mind then enters upon the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom attained by the destruction of the taints. So this is a, a very important teaching within Theravadan Buddhism. Um, it's a contrast. There's a contrast between this... Um, this uh, teaching on, on arahanship and what we find within our own tradition, the Mahayana archetype of the Bodhisattva. It's trying to come up with a, a um, brief definition of uh, the way of the Bodhisattva. And I found a Soto saying, which is very brief and captures it beautifully, Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. In other words, in, in, in our tradition, we do the work to see into the mind. 
to, to awaken to our true nature. But then we turn back. We turn back to the world to extend a helping hand. Another poetic saying on, on this, talking about Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of, of wisdom. The thousand surging waves are Manjushri's condition. So you'd think for Manjushri, Bodhisattva of Prajna wisdom, it would be stillness. But no, coming back to the thousand surging waves, all the troubles of this world. Or Toni Morrison, the uh, black American writer, who said, the function of freedom is to free somebody else. Should be should understand that these two archetypes exist alongside each other in Buddhism. Um, perhaps because it's it's not um, it's it's a it's it's there's there's truth in both. And in a sense, it's you could say it's a matter of. Um, emphasis rather than an either-or, though you can certainly find lots of debates within the sutras about this, especially the, the Mahayana ones, of course. We have on, you have on one side this, the Ahat ideal in which there's a relinquishment of samsara and all its struggles. And so the, the emphasis, you could say, in that, that way of, of going or thinking is release. Releasing from all the all the um, struggles of um, embodied existence. And then on the other side you have the Bodhisattva ideal in which there's this turning back to continue to participate in samsara but without the struggle to come back out of kindness and and to joyfully engage in helping all sentient beings. So you could say in the in the in the Mahayana tradition there's this holding fast. Master Hakuin captures what how it is seen in the Mahayana beautifully at the end of his chant and praise of Zazen that we just chanted. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. is a, a footnote to what we were saying earlier about about consciousness too that this is this not talking about it <laughs> um, not using the word consciousness is a is um, particularly a, a Zen thing which is which always goes with the concrete and the down to earth um, but it's um, is referred to as consciousness this this, um, this it that is not an it, 
um, within, for instance, Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. Here's Machu Ricard says, generally what is called mind or consciousness seems to be a mass of thoughts relating to perceptions, emotions, memories and imagination. But behind the curtain of thoughts, can we discern the fundamental component of the mind? Can we see the pure awareness of the present moment that underlies all mental activity? And that's probably the best if we would have a conceptual def de um, definition the pure awareness of the present moment. And, and understanding that this pure awareness of the present moment underlines all, he says here, mental activity, but all our experience. We couldn't experience anything without this pure awareness of the present moment. Back to uh, Russell Williams here. His um, talking here again about his his. Um, dissolving like sugar into tea. The quality which was me will be available to all, not as an entity, but as a quality. I will still be there to help. I will come through other people, just as the influence of other people comes through me. Where else could it go? In a sense, I'm looking forward to it, not that I'm going to bring it forward. I've glimpsed the process, glimpsed the process between death and rebirth, even though I've never seen it wholly. I'm beginning to realize that this time around my being will quietly dissolve itself into the whole atmosphere. What I'm doing here is helping a group of people to see in this fashion, to realize that there is something of a different nature beneath the surface, something unseen which is helping to prepare for the human race's next step in evolution. In the future, people will come, become much more aware of the spiritual part of their nature. It could take a hundred years, possibly a few centuries, but eventually a shift will take place. I am convinced that it will only take a small number of enlightened people to shift the human race to a higher level, perhaps only 20 or 30 fully realized people. It will happen. There's nothing to worry about. It may well be that before we reach this stage, an awful phenomenon will wreak havoc on the human race. But there has to be some sort of chaos before a shift occurs. There has to be a degree of death before rebirth. Death shouldn't be seen as final. It's part of a process of change. 
Its purpose is to bring about a great shift. Within everyone's body, their physical body, death is taking place every moment of the day. And this constant death allows regeneration. Every cell is completely changed, blood being the quickest, and the, hairs, na the nails, hair, and skin. So death is part of the living condition. It's not a frightening phenomenon. Even thoughts, they arise, they come to be, and then they die again. The same with emotions. We have to face death before we have a renewal. Chaos isn't necessarily a state of despair, but one of hope. This process will involve a shift in the human psyche, whereby people will much more readily see the spiritual nature within them, rather than being immersed in only the physical. We will expand our consciousness so that we can see beyond the shadows into the light. This isn't just me. There are many people around the world working in the same way. It's so important that we, we remember that um, death is not final. We see... around the world, much destruction. And we imagine worse, probably, uh, for many people. The, the, the pandemic has been um, full of death and loss and change. But to, to, to understand that, that death does allow for regeneration, We've seen some of that uh, in the pandemic, the way suddenly people were willing to think about things in a different way as a result of um, the transformations that had to happen under the pandemic. To see this big picture, to see birth and death um, uh, on, the, on this sort of universal stage as... as uh, the, the turning of the wheel of samsara. And to be able to see, along with Hakuan, that this earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, in the midst of that change. Uh, quite a few years ago when the Dalai Lama visited here um, it was a big um, event for him in the Victor Arena it's like maybe 10,000 people there and um, he he was talking I think it was the main topic was the Four Noble Truths and then at the end there was a time when people could write questions on slips of paper and hand them in and he was answering and um, somebody asked a question about um, coming breakdown with, with um, climate crisis and other um, ecological um, emergencies that we, we're facing. And um, he, he pulled back even further to a sort of cosmic level and said, well, all, you know, all universes are born and die. And at the time I was kind of 
didn't find it a very satisfactory answer because um, it seemed it seemed to not fully address the 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 um, the painful nature of regarding loss of of species and life and and uh, ecosystems. But at the same time, it is one dimension to the whole process and the the situation, the 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 emergency or the urgency which we're in. And perhaps if we can have this dimension as well as doing what we can to avert disaster, it can can help to give us a sense of perspective. And we can listen to to enlightened ones such as. Uh, um, Russell Williams, that that in some sense this this destruction is um, part of uh, a process of evolution. continues, there are things which seem ordinary to me, but which appear extraordinary to others. In my presence, people become very attentive. I'm not entirely sure what they see or experience. They simply sit quietly and seem to absorb the atmosphere like a gas. Everyone becomes immersed in it, and the room is filled with a powerful stillness and peace. It's as if I'm a catalyst I become quiet and the quietness spreads to everyone. Enlightenment is ordinary, even if it might seem extraordinary to the onlooker. Um, what he's describing here is, is um, uh, very akin to the kind of teaching that Ramana Maharshi would give. Um, it was called darshan, of just being in the presence of the, of the, um, of the enlightened person. And how uh, what it, an effect that has on one. I'm 93 now. Um, this was um, this book got published in 2014. So um, he died in 2018. I'm 93 now, and it's more than 60 years since I underwent that shift, but it hasn't been static. Over the years, new things have emerged and I've begun to see in greater depth. One begins to look into more profound areas, to reach realms which one never knew were there, or to see the same thing but with more clarity. There's always something beyond. I'm beginning to wonder if there will ever be an end. When I look at my life, until the age of 29 there was utter desperation. There was some contentment in my early years, but we when we lived in poverty, we had the richness of family life. But I couldn't have wished I couldn't have wished for better parents, and it was a shame they couldn't stay around. But since I underwent the shift, there has been peace. My purpose has been fulfilled. I am one with the nameless. I know the process I've been a part of won't be completed while I'm on this earth, but it's heading in the right direction. I assume it will happen. My role in the process is almost finished. My influence will remain, 
as a wider consciousness which will enter into everybody, not just as a personal consciousness. I won't be coming back, but I'll still be here. And again, I'm pretty sure that Ramana Maharshi said something very similar when he was um, ill on his deathbed with cancer. When people were, were weeping and, and sad that he was going to leave them, and he said, um, if I remember it correctly, something like, where would I go? Where do you think I'm going to go? I'll be here. Okay, well that's the, the end of the, the biographical material. I think we still have a little time. I forgot to set my timer. Five minutes? <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you, timer. Um, well, this, we're just going to be dipping in here and there, so we'll just dip in, dip in once and then, and then stop there. He's talking here about um, finding contentment. And he says, but contentment isn't something that we aim for. It's not a question of moving forward to a destination, but of dissociating ourselves from all the things that hold us back, whether you think of them as the seven deadly sins in Christianity or the hindrances in Buddhism. We make ourselves clearer. We allow our true selves to shine through and contentment begins to emerge naturally. You can understand that um, it's a contradiction to seek contentment because the desire for contentment is, in effect, discontent. There's an implication if we're, if we're seeking peace or, or contentment or, or clarity even, that there's somebody who wants that. There is behind it, implicit in it, um, this, a sense of self-partiality, of wanting to acquire something. Let's like to finish up with a uh, passage from another teacher. From, uh, this is from Kongtro um, Zigar Rinpoche. And he's talking about um, going beyond self-importance. And it relates very much to this, this um, kind of bind that we can get ourselves into if, we don't, um, if we're not careful. He says, It is not easy to contemplate being held captive by anyone or anything, let alone ego. We may feel panic and resistance at the very suggestion but we are even now being held captive in samsara by our largely unconscious sense of self-importance. Without keen awareness of our self-importance, we can't free ourselves because self-importance shapes our relationship with the world, the spiritual path, and our mind. Self-importance, we could say, is um, our feeling like we should... Um, have things our way. We should have 
food we like, we should get the sleep we think we need, we should um, have the uh, conditions that we like in the zendo, the, the, the right temperature, the right seat, all of these things. Somehow we are deserving of these things. And often this it is pretty unconscious. We, we may not, these, these notions are so close to us that we, um, we don't see that this is what we're doing. We're reinforcing the sense of self. Even with great diligence and practice, and with practice experiences as many and varied as wildflowers in the spring, all of our accomplishments will belong to ego if the ground of our practice is the desire to be special. We may think that we're great practitioners making progress on the path, but actually our self-importance may be getting more solid. The desire to be special and also acting as if we are special. As our mind becomes less pliable, we become more isolated from our teacher and from the wisdom of the Dharma. If we don't get the recognition we feel we deserve, we may lose our appreciation for the teacher altogether. The spiritual path becomes a disappointment, and nothing seems to be working in our favor, particularly on this path of liberation from self-importance. If we are unwilling to work with ourselves, we may come to believe that we don't need anyone, no lineage, no three jewels, no teacher, no friends. Lacking the confidence to let go of control, we will try to fix all of our problems on our own. With such an attitude, no one can get close enough to truly see us. And we certainly don't want to hear anyone suggest that we may have some faults, even if it's true. So suggestions might shake the foundation of our, such suggestions might shake the foundation of our identity and rattle our world. We might have to relearn everything from A to Z. From this sense of uncertainty, we reject the whole thing. But even if the world were to honour us with everything it had, if people offered us their hearts and lives, it still wouldn't be enough to ease our pain inside. Why is this? It's because self-importance has no interest in how ego works. It has no interest in looking in the mirror and seeing our true face. Even when self-importance doesn't manifest as arrogance or pride, when it has a look of total humility and selflessness, it still has no real interest in self-reflection. So we continue to operate in the habitual ways that cause us tremendous pain. We may feel some renunciation toward the pain. Even animals and newborn children feel renunciation toward pain. In other words, want to relieve it. What we need, however, is renunciation toward the cause of pain, which is self-importance. No matter... Um, how many sashins we go to, how much practice we do, how many Dharma books we read, if we're not addressing this self-partiality, this um, sense of being, um, what, is, what did they say in the Maori um, passage? An autonomous individual. If we don't recognize um, our reciprocity with all things, then we're going to stay isolated. We're going to stay lonely. 
dissatisfied, discontented. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I'll vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain.